Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. These are the audio versions of the sermons preached each Sunday. I hope you enjoy. Our first scripture reading comes to us from Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. Such a very large crowd gathered around him that he got into a boat on the sea and sat there, while the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. He began to teach them many things in parables, and in his teachings he said to them, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it didn't have much soil, and it sprang up quickly since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Other seed fell into good soil and brought forth grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirty and sixty and a hundredfold. And he said, Let anyone with ears to hear listen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today comes from Mark chapter 4, verses 13 to 20. This is the conclusion of the parable of the sower. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? Then how will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones on the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy. But they have no root and endure for only a while. Then, when trouble or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are those sown among the thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the lure of wealth and the desire for other things come in and choke the word and it yields nothing. And these are the ones sown on the good soil. They hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as you all are well aware, the coronavirus has really upended our world. Some of us have lost our lives. Others have lost their livelihoods and still others have lost their homes. I can say that for my family, I feel very grateful that we are intact. We're healthy, we have our jobs. I wanna thank you all for that. And we have our home. The only thing that the coronavirus has done to my family is that it has upended our plans. If you were here in February, you know that you voted as a congregation to provide me with a sabbatical. Sabbatical happens once every seven years and I was going to spend June, July, and August away resting and recuperating, and unfortunately that will not be happening this summer because our travel plans got all messed up due to the travel restrictions. But I want to thank you for the opportunity to do it, and hopefully we'll be able to pick up on that next summer. 
Since I'm going to be here all summer, I want to begin our new sermon series, which is called Sans Peril, Without Equal. The Sans Peril was a locomotive train engine that was built by Timothy Hackworth in the early 1800s. At the time, it was considered to be one of the greatest locomotive train engines ever conceived. And so the term Sans Peril is French. It means peerless or without equal. Now, of course, his locomotive steam engine, it was surpassed by many other engines, but the name has stuck as being emblematic of the best. So when we say that someone or something is sans peril, what we mean by that is that they are literally the best in the world, that they're a class above the rest. But this idea of something being sans peril, it is actually very interesting when you look at it through a Christian lens. Because in Christianity, we believe that God imbues all people with gifts and talents. And so the question arises, what exactly makes these people out of seven and a half billion human beings on the planet the very best at what they do? How did they rise to the top? And so the goal of this sermon series is going to be to examine what makes them the best at what they do. And we're not only gonna look at their success, but we're gonna look at the qualities and the characteristics that allowed them to rise to the top. We're going to attempt to learn from them. We wanna learn about human nature. We wanna learn about what makes them the best type of person and the worst type of person. We also wanna look at how they were successful. Was it because they had talent? that they were born with a specific set of skills? Were they very hard workers? Did they have a lot of luck? Was it personality? Were they born in the right place at the right time? When you take a look at all of these factors together, it paints a really interesting picture of what it takes to be the best. And so each week we're gonna be looking at two people who are the best in their particular field. And what we're gonna see is that these two people usually have very different contrasting views on how they became the best. And so we're gonna be examining their past, what it took for them to get there, and how they were able to rise to the top. And then we're going to extract those qualities and characteristics. And we're gonna examine them through a biblical lens. What can we learn from those qualities and characteristics? How does God want us to use those qualities and characteristics to become the very best kind of Christians so that we can help create God's kingdom here on earth? So we begin this 10-week sermon series by looking at two of the best chefs in the world. Both of these chefs they have received a three-star Michelin rating. Now, for those of you who may not be familiar with Michelin ratings, the Michelin rating or the Michelin review is considered to be the most coveted review in the culinary world. So I wanna take some time to actually tell you a little bit about the Michelin review because if you don't understand that, it's hard to understand what makes these chefs so incredible. So 
In the early 1900s, the Michelin Tire Company in France, they were trying to encourage people to go out and actually use their cars because a number of people had started to buy cars, but they weren't driving them very much, and of course, that's not very good for tire sales. So they came up with what was known as the Michelin Guide. And the Michelin Guide, it provided a bunch of different things for the user. One thing it provided was maps and roads of France so that you knew how to get around. It also gave you instructions on how to repair and to replace your tires. It also allowed for people to understand a list of mechanics. So if you're driving and your car breaks down, which happened very often during the 1900s, cars would break down, you'd know where to go. It also told you about various hotels and restaurants and gas stations. And so it was this all-in-one guide that people really, really enjoyed having in their glove compartment so that they could could look at it when they wanted to go somewhere. By the early 1920s, what happens is Michelin realizes that the restaurant portion of their guide is becoming very, very popular. So they hire these anonymous inspectors to go to qualified restaurants to give them a grade. It was between one and three stars. Now, for a while, they never said what those stars meant. But in 1936, they released what the rankings were talking about. So when we're looking at one star, that means it's a very good restaurant in its category. Two stars is excellent cooking that is worth a detour. And three stars is exceptional cuisine worth a special journey, meaning that you should actually just drive to go to that specific restaurant. Now, following World War II, what happens is that Michelin goes outside of France. They start sending their inspectors all over the world. Now, just so that we're clear on this, so that we understand what kind of restaurants they're looking for, there are millions of restaurants all over the world. But most of those restaurants do not even qualify to have a Michelin inspector darken their doors. To give you a sense of just how stringent it is, when a Michelin inspector comes in, oftentimes, if you even qualify, you will not even get one star. So the stringency is very high. As an example, let's take the restaurants that are in New York City. New York City is seen to be a place where you can go and have just some of the finest dining in the world. Now, there are 26,642 restaurants in New York City. Now, that may change after the pandemic, but that was what it was right before the pandemic. So of those 26,642 restaurants, 47 have a one-star Michelin rating, 11 have a two-star Michelin rating, and five have a three-star Michelin rating. So two-tenths of 1% of all of the restaurants in New York City have a Michelin rating. By contrast, here in Chicago, we have one restaurant that has a three-star Michelin rating. Now, the two chefs who we're going to be talking about today, both of them have a three-star Michelin rating. The first person we're going to be talking about is Daniel Hum. Daniel is the chef and owner of 11 Madison Park in New York City. 11 Madison was voted in 2017 the best restaurant in the world by S. Pellegrino's World's 50 Best Restaurants. They ranked the best restaurants in the world. They were number one in 2017. 
The second person we're going to be looking at today is Jairo Ono. Jairo Ono is the owner of Sukiyabashi Jairo, which is a Japanese restaurant in Tokyo. Now, Jairo is amazing because he is considered by his contemporaries to be the greatest living sushi chef. He is also credited with creating many of the techniques that we use in modern sushi preparation. So in order to get a better sense of who these men are, I would like to show you a combination of two different documentaries that I cut together. One of the documentaries, which is about Daniel Hum, is called Seven Days Out. It's a series that talks about seven days before a big event is to occur, and this talks about Daniel Hum and his restaurant. The other one is from Gyro Dreams of Sushi, which is a documentary just about him, and I've combined pieces of these together, so I want you to watch and see what these two men are all about. 11 Madison Park is a near-perfect dining experience. It's in that amazing space with a soaring ceiling, exquisite service, and totally memorable, distinctive food. What distinguished Daniel's work was a careful balance and pretty seamless integration of classic, elegant, laborious French cooking and the sort of avant-garde new wave. Number one in the world's 50 best restaurants list and therefore the world's best restaurant from New York, it's 11 Madison Park. Thank you so much for believing in us, for inspiring us, for supporting us. Okay, so this is how we can cook the apples. So you have to cook them upside down. It's very important you push this liver inside. And then just bake them all. Bake them all. They bake five minutes. It freeze, 75, 400. You don't want to get too high, otherwise it's like apple crocs. We've been working on these dishes for the past six months. This last tasting is definitely not a formality. It's super crucial. I really push to the very last minute if I feel something can be better. Even an entire dish can completely change. Dimitri, how are you? How's it going, chef? How to see you? Good to have the trip. Are we doing the food here? Yeah, chef. I came up with four fundamentals. They define our cuisine. This is what, emirates? Yeah. yeah. Number one, the dish has to be delicious. Yeah, I love it. Number two, the dish has to be beautiful. This is not the prettiest I've seen. So visually, I think we can make something more beautiful. Number three, creativity. It's very important that every dish adds something to the dialogue of food today. This is really perfect. And number four is intention. It needs to make sense that this dish exists. This dish is about the chanterelle, no? Yeah. And make it taste like chanterelle. I really want to have like a mushroom dish. Between the four fundamentals, they work against each other. Like creativity and deliciousness, they don't go hand in hand but they both need to be there. Don't know sushi is simple. Yokeena koto wo shite nai. De minna gaigoku no Mitsubishi no shef ga otozurete 
あのお寿司を一言で言うとシンプルを極めていくとピュアになるって毎日決まったものでもう電車に乗る場所まで同じなんですね。だからお正月休みが一番苦手だって言ってました。休みが多すぎて早く仕事したいなって普通の人には考えられないようなことをやってましたね。自分に厳しいっていうことにかけて他の料理人もたくさん見てるんですけどもあんなに自分に厳しい人見たことないですね。それから節制するで常に明日のことを考えてるここでやめるっていうことがないもっと美味しくならないかもっと上手になれないかっていうことを24時間今でも考えてるやっぱり優れた料理人ってね大体5つあの条件があるんですね。で一つ目はねやっぱり真面目だっていうことがあります仕事を一緒にコンスタントにこうやるっていう真面目さ二つ目はね向上心昨日より今日今日より明日っていうのがあるんですね三つ目は、ね、清潔感やっぱり清潔な感じがする人からじゃないと美味しい料理はできないかなと思うんですねで4つ目はね短期っていうかまああんまり、えー、社会的にグループで評価されないようなものがあってわがまま自分のやりたいことを押し通すでこれは5つ揃ったところにパッションを持ってる人がやっぱりすごい料理人かなと思って全部備えてる完璧主義者ですねパーフェクショニスト。Now, what should be clear to you after watching both of these men is that they are both the best at what it is that they do. Although they make very different types of cuisine, both of these men, when it comes to their particular niche, there is nobody who can match them in terms of the dishes that they prepare. But why these two men are so interesting to me is that they took very different paths to get to the top. So let's begin with Daniel Hum. Daniel Hum, he was born in Switzerland, and at the age of 14, he decides that he's going to drop out of school and he wants to become a professional cyclist. So, from 14 to the age of 21, he tries professional cycling, and then at the age of 21, he decides, you know what? No, I want to become a professional chef. So, he starts working in some of the best restaurants and hotels in Switzerland. And at the age of 24, three years after he begins, he receives his first Michelin star rating, which is a huge deal. Now, he's not the youngest person to ever receive one Michelin star. That honor goes to Aidan Byrne, who was 22. But he is the person who rose to prominence the fastest. Only three years, nobody had ever done that before. And so, what happens is that people see Daniel, he gets on the map in the culinary world, and they expect big things from him. So, he ends up moving to the United States. He moves to San Francisco, where he becomes the executive chef of Campton Place. And at Campton Place, he receives a four star review from the San Francisco Chronicle. 
Then three years later in 2006, he moves out to New York City. And that's when he becomes the executive chef of 11 Madison Park. Now, five years after that, in 2011, Daniel receives his first three-star Michelin review. And as you heard in the documentary about his life, his philosophy is that there are four basic essentials that one needs to engage in to truly create the best kind of dishes. And so he talks about how these four essentials, they essentially they are battling against each other. So as an example, he talks about how creativity is often in opposition to deliciousness, that those two things do not go hand in hand. But yet, he is able to make this happen. And this is perhaps why he's able to create such incredible dishes in his restaurants. So he's always pushing the boundaries of how to combine ingredients together. His creativity is such that he is able to really push the envelope of flavor and texture. And so when he creates a new dish, he knows exactly how he wants it to taste. This is something very unique about him. There is no ambiguity. He knows what he wants it to taste like. He knows what he wants the, the texture to be. And because of this, he has created dishes that he knows that everybody is going to enjoy. And this is perhaps why he has won so many different awards. Now, he contrasts greatly with somebody like Jaira Ono. Jaira Ono, he has a very, very different background. So, Jaira was born in 1925, literally two decades after the Michelin Guide came out. At the age of seven, he was kicked out of his home by his father because his father was a drunk and he couldn't afford to keep him. So at seven years old, Jairo is homeless and he ends up going to a restaurant because he needs to eat and he offers to work in exchange for food. Following World War II, Jairo becomes a certified sushi chef in 1951. And then in 1965, he ends up opening his own restaurant at the age of 40 in a subway station in Tokyo. Now, unlike Daniel, Jairo focuses and specializes on only one type of food, which is nigiri sushi. So he doesn't do anything else. And when I say he doesn't do anything else, I truly mean he doesn't do anything else. If you've been to a sushi restaurant here in the United States, what you are probably aware of is that you can get a variety of different foods. You can get appetizers, you can get different kinds of rolls, you can even get meat at some of these restaurants other than fish. But when it comes to Jairo's restaurant, he will only serve one thing, and that is nigiri sushi. Now, after opening his restaurant, he ends up befriending many different people who deal in fish, and he finds people who he believes are gonna provide him with the best quality fish. So when he wants tuna, he has one guy who he goes to who he believes is going to get him the best possible tuna in Tokyo on that day. But he doesn't go to that same guy for the salmon. He has a very different guy who he goes to who specializes in the best salmon, so he knows he's gonna get the best salmon. And this is true for other things, even beside the fish. He goes to a guy who gets him the best seaweed and a guy who gets him the best rice. And so once he has these best ingredients, the finest ingredients, he starts working over a period of years and decades to refine his methodology of how he's going to bring out the best flavor in these foods. So for example, 
If you've ever been to a sushi restaurant and you've had octopus, you know that it tends to be very chewy. But what he came to realize is that if you massage the octopus for about 40 minutes, it actually makes it quite tender. And so this is what he does every day. He comes in and he'll massage the octopus for about 40 minutes to make sure that it's just the right amount of tenderness. He also figured out how long you should take seaweed and put it over an open flame in order to bring the right amount of crispness and flavor out. And so what he decided to do, once, is, once he came up with a method to figure out what's the best way to prepare all of these ingredients, to bring out the flavor, he kept doing that and slowly improving upon it. And so Gyro is truly a perfectionist. He is unyielding in his methodology. And this is why if you go to his restaurant, what will happen is every time you go there, if you go 100 times, you will always get the same great tasting sushi every single time. And this is why in 2007, when an inspector from Michelin came to his restaurant, now of course, that inspector came anonymously. Nobody, they didn't say, hey, I'm an inspector from Michelin here. They come in anonymously, they ate, and he received a three-star Michelin review. Now, Gyro, he was 82 years old when he received this three-star review. He was the oldest chef to ever receive three Michelin stars. Now, at the time, people were really stunned by this because everybody knew that Gyro's sushi was the best. But there's a lot of things that go into a Michelin review that don't come out just in the food. So some of it is your space, some of it is how you treat people. And what's interesting is when you're looking at his restaurant, you would not exactly think that it's three-star Michelin. Because first of all, remember, it's in a subway station in Tokyo. It can only seat 10 people at a time, and there's not even a bathroom inside of the restaurant. You have to walk down a hallway to get there. And yet, he received that three-star review. He was the first sushi spot in the world to do so. And so as a result, he became kind of a national treasure to the Japanese. And he's 94 years old, and to this day, he still goes to his restaurant every day to prepare and serve sushi. Don't try to get a reservation there, though. I actually had a dream of wanting to go there and eat his sushi. The problem is, is that now he is so famous and so popular that only celebrities, heads of state, and dignitaries are able to get into his restaurant unless you are Japanese and a friend of his. So that's unfortunate, but that's what happens when you get to be famous sometimes. Now, having looked at both of these men, Daniel Hum, Jairo Ono, what exactly do these two men have to do with Christianity? And I will tell you that it's quite a lot, actually, but in order for you to understand the relationship between them and us, the first thing I need to do is pose a question to you, which is, what are your personal goals in being a Christian? Which might sound like kind of an odd question to ask, right? Because the fact is, we do have personal goals in lots of different areas of our lives. So, for instance, in our jobs, many of us have goals in our employment that we want to reach a certain level of income, or we want to get a promotion. Sometimes we have goals when it comes to our health, so we'll want to lose a certain amount of weight, or we'll start eating healthier. But when it comes to Christianity, we tend not to have very many goals. In fact, we tend not to have goals at all. And I think the reason why this happens is because we tend to think of Christianity as being an identity. 
And what I mean by that is an identity is something like that you can't really shift or change very much. So an identity is something like being male or female, black or white, Swiss or Japanese. That's an identity, and you don't have goals with those identities. Those are things that you simply are. But when it comes to Christianity, Christianity is more than just an identity. Christianity requires you to have goals that you change the person who you are. So as an example, when you're Christian, you should have goals to change different aspects of your life. Perhaps it's your personal choices. Perhaps it's your behaviors. Perhaps it's your internal state of mind. But you should always have ways that you're looking for goals of how to change yourself to better reflect the gospel. The question is, how do you get there? And in order to explore that, I just want to take a brief moment to look at the parable of the sower that we read this morning. Now, the parable of the sower is perhaps one of Jesus' most famous parables. And this parable, if we were to look at it in broad strokes, what it's doing is it's talking about four different types of people and how they react to the gospel message. So the first kind of person who hears the gospel simply rejects it. They hear it. They don't want anything to do with it. They just keep on walking. The second person, they hear the gospel, and then after hearing it, they fall away very quickly because it's just too hard for them. The third person who hears it is a person who becomes very passionate about the gospel. They love what it has to do, but their passion causes them to burn out quickly. And then the fourth kind of person is the person who hears the gospel, And after hearing it, they decide that they're going to dedicate their life to it, and they're in it for the long haul. Now, if you take a step back and you look at this parable, what you realize is that there's a major discrepancy between the number of people who actually hear the gospel and reject it versus the number of people who hear the gospel and accept it. And those who accept it are in the minority. And the question is, why? And for me, I really believe that the answer to that question comes down to what it takes to be successful as a Christian. And that might be kind of a strange way of putting it, how one is successful as a Christian, because, again, we talk about it in terms of our employment. How do you become successful at your job or with your health? How do you become successful at losing weight? We don't often think of that in terms of our Christianity. But in order to be successful at Christianity. To be successful as a Christian, you got to be all in. You got to be willing to sacrifice. You have to be willing to put Christianity at the center of your life and make it the focus of everything that you're doing. In other words, if you want to fall into the fourth category of Jesus's parable, where you're actually the person who does it for the long haul, What he's telling us is that those people actually shouldn't look at Christianity as an identity, but rather they need to see Christianity as a pursuit. It's something that you need to strive after. It's something where you're always looking to improve, that you're going to do better today than you did the day before. And so when you look at Christianity as a pursuit, as something that you are striving after in your life, that is when people like Daniel Hum and Jairo Ono have a lot to teach us. So as I talked about earlier, 
Both of these men, they had a very unique path that led them to be at the top of their profession. So for Daniel Hum, he was a man who was able to succeed very, very quickly. He rose to the top fast, and he is a master at pushing the boundaries at a variety of different foods. He used a diversity of ingredients in his food, and he's able to really use those ingredients to try to push the boundaries of flavor and texture. And so Daniel Hum is someone who is, through his talent and through his sheer willpower, was able to learn all of the techniques of cooking very, very quickly. Whereas when we look at somebody like Gyro, it took him several decades to be able to even figure out how to rise to the top and to push the boundaries of one type of food. So Gyro is very slow and plotting. It takes him time to figure out the moves that he wants to make. He's a person who repeats the same patterns over and over again in order to push the boundaries of a singular food. In this way, what we see is that Gyro is someone who, through extensive trial and error, is able to learn the techniques of cooking over time. Now, the truth is, is that we as Christians, we find ourselves in the categories of both of these men. So some of us are like Daniel Hum. Some of us, we understand intuitively when we become Christians what needs to be done. We set goals for ourselves, and we can quickly achieve those goals. I'm always amazed by somebody who comes into the church. They've never really understood the gospel before, but they come in, and they learn it very quickly, and then they very fast transform their lives into this completely different person. I once met a man in one of my first jobs, in California, who was a wreck when he came to the church. This guy was an abusive alcoholic. He had abandoned his family. And within a period of about two and a half years, he had completely transformed his life. He was a completely different kind of person. But the truth is, what I've come to find is that the Daniels are rare. Most of us are like Gyro. Most of us experience our transformation slowly over time. It takes us years and sometimes decades to master a singular aspect of the Christian faith. And in doing so, what it means is, is that we have to have a goal in mind and we have to keep going after that goal and we can't give up and then eventually we'll get there. And so what these two chefs have to teach us is that whether you achieve your goal quickly or whether you achieve it over a period of time. Both of these men are fiercely dedicated to their craft. They are constantly striving to improve the standards of what they put out. And this is something that we need to be doing as Christians. We need to be fiercely dedicated to the pursuit of Christianity. We constantly have to be raising the bar. We constantly have to be upping our game and achieving better goals for ourselves. We cannot sit there and simply say to ourselves, well, I'm a Christian and that's fine. I'll just assume the label and that's good enough. No, Jesus expects more from us and we shall do more. And so my prayer for you this morning 
is that you might start to look at Christianity not as an identity, but as a pursuit, something that you are striving after. And I hope that you will set up goals for yourself. And these goals don't need to be super stringent. They can be very simple. It could be as simple as trying to treat strangers with dignity and respect. It could be as simple as being less judgmental in your mind. It could be spending less money on yourself and more money on those in need. It could be trying to teach and help other people when they are in need in a situation where you know them, whether it be your family, your friends, your colleagues, like helping them to truly see the example of what it means to be a Christian. And so regardless of what your goal is, whether you're able to achieve that goal quickly, like Daniel Hum, or over a long period of time, like Jairo Ono, the fact is, is that you need to have a goal, that you need to see Christianity as a pursuit in your life. And we do this because we want to become like the fourth type of person in Jesus' parable. We want to become the person who produces 30, 60, and 100 times the fruit. And we do this because Jesus expects it of us, because we can rise to that level, and that's the kind of Christian that we will be in this church. I hope that you're doing well at home. We certainly miss you here, and I hope that you will have a good rest of your week. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.